Good morning, Forrest Hugh. Uh, it, it's nice to be here. It's, it's been a number of weeks, actually, since I've been in the building on a Sunday morning. I was here uh, for the first couple of weeks post uh, when, when we started doing Zoom online. And it's just such a reminder of the amount of work that goes in uh, to put in this service together. But it's also this reminder, this sad reminder, that we could have the best Zoom service in all of North America or the world, and it would pale in comparison to being together. So I see this largely empty room, and I feel this sense of sadness. So who knows when we'll be back together, but, uh, but I look forward to that day. We are um, living in this time, having these conversations of, of racism and, and racial, racial tensions. And these tensions are continuing with the uh, uh, tragic death last night in Atlanta of Rayshard Brooks and the deaths recently in New Brunswick of First Nations people Chantal Moore and Rodney Levi. And alongside these conversations of racial tensions and racism have been these conversations of this social phenomenon known as white privilege. White privilege uh, is something that Peggy McIntosh wrote about in 1988, describing it as this invisible package of unearned assets that white people possess and can cash in on on a day in and day out basis. I don't recall when I first heard this term. I, I know that I was a little bit defensive about it. I didn't think of myself as a person of privilege. Uh, but I also recall the stories that I heard that started to chip away at this defensiveness. One was um, teaching a, a class of first-year social service worker students. One of my students, a young black man from North Toronto, wrote in a personal essay about his experience of taking a bus home uh, after work getting off the bus, walking to his home, and being stopped by the police, and being questioned and being carded uh, for no apparent reason, just simply under suspicion because of the color of his skin. And I reflected on my own experience as a youth taking the bus around the city of Burlington, and that never happened to me. That it never even would have occurred that such a thing could happen to me. And then more recently, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, watching a, a, a panel discussion being led by a pastor in Minneapolis uh, the Sunday after the death of George Floyd. He was interviewing four members of his congregation, all African-American, and one of them tells a story, this one man tells a story that has stuck with me about how his father instructed him as a child that every time he goes to the store, he must take his receipt. My father never told me that. I was never worried about that. That wasn't an issue that I would be treated with suspicion when I went to the corner store. So white privilege is this real thing that we, uh, that we have. It's this unearned asset, but privilege comes to us in many forms and on the basis of many things, not just our skin color. If you have access to universal health care, you have privilege. If your children benefit from quality, publicly funded education, if you have access to clean drinking water, you have privilege. If you have the freedom to gather and to worship, unlike people in other parts of the world, um, during regular times at least, uh, you have privilege. So as people with privilege, I believe the question for us is, what do we do th with this? What do we do with our privilege? Do we acknowledge it or do we deny it? Do we hold it for our own selfish gain or do we use it to walk alongside and serve the oppressed? Are we humble and recognize it as undeserved, or do we treat it with some sense of entitlement? As we return to our series on life together in Philippians, I, we're going to look at uh, and think about the Apostle Paul's own relationship with privilege, and then in turn, think about ourselves. 
So jumping ahead to chapter 3, we're going to read from verses 2 to 11. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Philippi, says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains were to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 11, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. In this passage, Paul is saying to the, to the church at Philippi, watch out for those dogmatic Jewish Christians called the, called the Judaizers, who say, you need not only to be a follower of Jesus, but on top of that, you need to become, essentially, you need to become Jewish. You need to become circumcised and, fo- circumcised and follow all the rules of Jewish law. And this is a cause that Paul has fought long and hard on. He is without reservation opposed to this idea that Gentile Christians need to be circumcised and that they need to follow the letter of the law. And so Paul, in his argument, speaks about his own privilege. He says uh, to the church of Philippi that if you think it's great to become Jewish, if you're going to be, follow these instructions, well, you know what? I am... I am Jewish. I was, you could become circumcised now, but I was circumcised at birth. You think that you could become Jewish? Well, I am of the people of Israel, but not only that, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, the favored tribe among all the tribes. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Pharisee. I was educated, educated at the feet of the great Gamaliel, the, uh, the Jewish uh, teacher. I am zealous. I was, I was every day not just an everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisee, but prior to conversion, I was the one who sought, out to, sought to stamp out the radical sect of Jesus' followers. I was righteous and blameless. Not only was I circumcised, but I ate the right things. I drank the right things. I attended all the festivals. These are some credentials that Paul is talking about. But the important point of his argument is his relationship with privilege. So what do we learn from the Apostle Paul? Well, first we learn that Paul didn't place his identity in his privilege. So while he dispenses with this list of credentials, he isn't doing this to boast, but rather he's making his argument. Essentially what he's saying to the church in Philippi is, if these Judaizers come and speak about their own elite status as educated Jews, well, by the way, I am way more Jewish than they are and way more educated than they are. So yes, you can listen to them. You could become Jewish yourself. But what I want you to really know is that I count all my privilege as loss as compared to the riches of knowing Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 11, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings, participate in his resurrection. I want my identity to be found in Jesus, not in my privilege. For the Apostle Paul, everything is about being in Christ. There's an intimacy in this relationship that is more valuable than anything else. In John 15, and I wonder if if the Apostle Paul is even reflecting upon this teaching, in John 15, 
Jesus uses this metaphor of a vine, where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, meaning that we are organically connected, such as that all our life comes from Jesus. All our life comes from him. And this is what Paul is speaking about. He finds his identity and purpose in being like the branch, connected to the source vine, that is Jesus. Nothing is worth more to him than this. But what does this mean? Does this mean that our racial and ethnic identity don't matter? Does this mean that we are to simply forget or deny our privilege? Well, I believe the answer to both of these questions are no. No and no. Paul's dismissive attitude towards his Jewish heritage and towards his education, remember, is to support his argument. Paul's case is that the non-Jewish converts don't need to become Jewish. They can remain who they are and are like him and, and like him seek their fullest identity in Christ and not in Jewish rituals and following Jewish laws. Yet, being in Christ does not mean doing away with your ethnicity or your race. Rather, our ethnicity and our race matter to God. Listen to the words from the book of Revelation, which help us imagine what the future kingdom of God will look like. Uh, the, the Apostle John writes in the book of Revelation, he's having this image and in the, or vision, and in this vision he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, in Revelation 7, 9. Heaven is not a monoculture, but this beautiful, diverse city. That's the image that John is sharing with us. That is what he is seeing. It's not that we lose our ethnic and racial diversity in God's future kingdom, but that as a diverse people, we are going to come together, united in worshiping Christ the King and who we find our truest self. And it's why we value diversity here at Forceview. For I know, I know we're not perfect in how we work this out, but when we are a diverse community of people from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, we feel that we are experiencing a taste of heaven. And it tastes good. We, we love it. We love it for you. And that is our, our heart. That is our desire to be this ethnic, diverse community giving us a taste of the future kingdom that we are going to be a part of. So no, we don't deny our ethnic and our racial identity. Do we deny our privilege? The second rhetorical question that I was asking. Is that what Paul's example is telling us to do? As a convert and now servant of Christ, Paul, Paul no longer uses his privilege to seek selfish gains. gains. He's not climbing the pharisaical ladder, although he could have. He had all the credentials to do so. He was a rising star. However, where Paul can use his privilege in service to Christ, he does. Let me give you three quick examples from the book of Acts. In his famous sermon on Mars Hill, found in Acts 15, Paul uses his intellect and his ability for cultural discernment to preach one of the greatest sermons ever. He looks at this unknown God, and he declares that this unknown God is the, uh, is the revelation of Christ himself. In the earlier mentioned Council of Jerusalem, by that I mean Paul arguing for the, uh, on behalf of Gentile Christians that they don't need to become Jewish converts. Paul takes his zeal to Jerusalem and he 
pleads his case before the founding fathers of the church, Peter and James in particular, and argues against the idea that Gentile Christians need to become Jewish, that they need to become circumcised. He uses his zeal in this way. And beyond being Jewish, Paul was also a Roman citizen. Scriptures don't give us any details of that, how that came to be in his life, but he was a Roman citizen. And on numerous occasions, we find in the book of Acts that he would pull out his Roman passport to protect himself and to advance his cause, to advance the mission of God that he was called to. So no, Paul doesn't pretend that he is without privilege, but instead he uses his privilege for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission. So what about ourselves? Thinking about ourselves, if we count ourselves as people of privilege in any form, skin color, education, citizenship, the quality of our water, what do we do with this? What is our relationship to privilege? Do we make our wealth, our comfort, our education, and our social status our gods? Or are we seeking intimacy with Christ? Do we desire to know him more, to be dependent upon him, as branches to the vine? Or to ask Matthew Skinner's question that was sent out in the leadership team update yesterday, are we relentless in the pursuit of God? Knowing Christ will come through nurturing your relationship with him. Yes, I know, this is Christianity, discipleship, one-on-one type of stuff. But just like any relationship that matters, we need a regular reminder that to grow our relationship with Jesus, we must nurture it. We must give Jesus time in our days and in our lives. And so I want to give you three suggestions about how you could do this, about how you could spend time with Jesus. And some of this is actually repetitive from the last time I preached, but that's okay. I think we all need these reminders. Uh, one suggestion, Sacred Space. It's an app, or you can find it on your web browser online. And it's this prayer uh, tool that takes you through movements of prayer where you can just uh, be present in, with Jesus in these movements of prayer and spending time in scripture and, uh, and having conversations with Jesus. So sacred space is this great tool that you can use to help you develop intimacy with Jesus and to find time with him. The other is the Bridgetown Church Daily. Uh, Bridgetown Church is a church in Portland. I know many of us uh, uh, like the teachings that come out of this church and follow along with some of their sermons. But beyond being online Sundays, they have a daily meditation, about 10 minutes long, that often is focused on scripture or cultural matters. But it always ends with this time of just sitting quiet, with open hands, with Jesus. Bridgetown Daily. You can find it on your podcast, whatever app you use. I sound like a commercial now. But it's there, okay? It's 10 minutes long. It, it helps you develop this, uh, this practice of being quiet before Jesus. Or perhaps you just need to practice six minutes of quiet. I'm not sure why I'm saying six minutes. Someone just told me that six minutes is the number. I, I think it's probably the minimum number that the person was saying. Of meditation and breath prayer. I know I mentioned breath prayer the last time I preached. The idea of breath prayer is that you're breathing in and you're praying. And as you exhale... You're, you're continuing your prayer. So let me give, if you Google breath prayer, you'll find all kinds of suggestions. Let me give you one that Sarah Bessie blogged about on March 12th, a breath prayer. Inhale, true vine and gardener. Exhale, I abide in you. This is a passage that we referenced earlier in John 15. 
true vine and gardener, I abide in you. And just repeating that over and over again draws you into, into intimacy and into the presence of Jesus. You're not going to be perfect at this, by the way. You're going to be distracted at times, but the idea, the idea is to be easy on yourself and just keep coming back to this practice of being present in the, of being and dwelling in the presence of Jesus through quiet times, either these ones or any tool or, or method or means that you have that are meaningful to you. Because remembering Paul's so that's the first thing. Remembering Paul's relationship with his privilege, he would also use it to advance the gospel and fulfill the mission. So here I want to talk about, are there ways that we can use our citizenship and our privilege to do the same, to use them for the sake of the gospel? And I believe that we can do at least two things. I believe we can write, we can speak, and we can listen. We can write. Voice of the Martyrs, one of our global mission partners who we talked about last month, are always reminding us and giving us resources on how we can write letters to people in prison for their faith in different parts of the world. And not only do these letters, if they reach the person, encourage them, but as they are passed through the hands of the officials and as they are received by the prison authorities, they are a reminder to them that this person is known and that this person is watched and they become forms of advocacy. And Voice of the Martyrs will tell you that the treatment of these prisoners improves when they know that this person is being watched and this person is being communicated with. So you can practice advocacy by writing letters. You can use your privilege as a Westerner to write letters to people in different parts of the world who are in prison because of their faith. You can speak. You can speak up and educate people on issues of racial injustice and injustice of any form. Remember the words of Grand Chief Alvin Fidler when he was with us back in November. Don't forget us. So whether that's just in social circles or social media, whatever form you have, wherever you have a voice, use that voice to speak about injustice and listen. And we know, and we've heard this said so often recently, and I completely agree that there is no greater privilege than to listen to another person's story. I feel privileged having this young man write this personal essay and trusting me, his teacher, with that story. It's a privilege to be able to watch um, the, uh, the, the, the panel discussion that you can find by this pastor in Minneapolis and hear these people share their stories. It's a privilege to hear these stories. We can listen. Our citizenship, our wealth, our education, and for most of us, even the color of our skin give us privilege that others don't have. What we do with it is up to us. Like the Apostle Paul, we can, on the one hand, count it all as loss for the greater good of knowing Christ, and at the same time, on the other hand, use it for the sake of God's kingdom. As we close, Paul's greatest desire, as I said, was to know Christ Jesus and to participate in his life and death and resurrection. One of the most visible ways that we can do this is by sharing in communion together. We can't do this hand to hand right now, but when we do this, when we take this small bit of bread and this sip of juice, we're identifying ourselves with, with him. We are saying that we are the branch who is grafted into the vine of Jesus. And we're saying that our life is bound up with him. And as we do this together, even virtually, we're saying that we, the church, are bound together and are binding together with Christ. So as we remember him together, let me pray 
and give thanks for what he has given to us. Gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. And our desire is to be bound up with him, to be grafted into this life, and for him to be organically connected to Jesus, who is the source of life for us. So as we take this bread and we take this juice, we remember your goodness to us and your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.